Those that make success and prosperity their study in life tell us that one of the, the things that is absolutely necessary for a healthy, successful, fruitful, and fulfilling life is that you have a goal. And they tell us that the difference between those in this life that are great and those that are mediocre, those that are rich and those that are poor, and those that are successful and those that are unsuccessful, really it boils down to the one common denominator that separates the two, and that is that the one group has a goal or is driven by a purpose, and the other group does not. They wander and they waver. Now, we all, as we have seen and, and observed life, we all recognize the reality of that. We can see that. We can attest to it in our own lives uh, to some degree or another, and we certainly have observed it in other people as we go. We know that that's true in the world. But it's also true for the Christian and the calling that we have to be uh, uh, Christians or, or, or saints in this world, representatives of God. God tells us in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, that his people perish for a lack of vision. That is, if we don't have a vision for our lives, or if we don't have a goal or something that we're aiming at, then it's going to cause us to drift off into no man's land, and ultimately it will cause us to perish in our purpose, and our lives, rather than being fruitful and productive for God, will, will become a shipwreck, or they'll become nothing, or it will just be a continual wandering. When we read the pages of Scripture and we look at the testimony of those people that have made a mark for God in the world, uh, we see that those that, that were able to do that, that all of them had a goal. They had a purpose. And so we look at Jacob and we see that when he had a purpose, he did well. And when he lost that purpose, then he would flounder and his family would turn sideways and his purpose would kind of be subverted. We see as we read about King David, you know, when it was put before him that there was a goal, that God has called you and you're going to be the king. And then when he became the king to make Jerusalem the capital, and then once he made Jerusalem the capital to prepare for the temple, and every time David had a goal, he prospered in that goal. God gave him a vision, and then that vision was completed by David's hand as he followed God and God empowered him. But then when David lost impetus or lost vision for his life and no longer had a goal, that's when he began to wander and flounder. He stayed at home. The episode with Bathsheba happened and things began to go downhill for David. The same thing happened in his son Solomon. Solomon was given a charge and a commission. He was to establish the things that David was not able to complete and to accomplish, and then he was to erect the temple that David had made the plans for and supplied the materials. And as long as that goal was in front of Solomon and he actively pursued it, he prospered, he grew, and he did well in the things of God. But when that vision was completed and he didn't re-up and establish a new goal for the back half of his reign, he made his goal to just get stupid rich, marry a bunch of women, and ultimately, his heart was turned away from God, and the end of his path was not the way it started out at the beginning. And so we see that when there's a pursuit of a God-given goal in the life of one of his people, 
There is prosperity in a spiritual sense. There's a sense of productivity and a sense of blessing and a sense of purpose and a sense of spiritual well-being that's in us. We're called to know what it is that God has called us to, and then we're to actively pursue that goal. And that's important. Now, for the Christian, it goes a step further than for anyone else in the world that will set and then accomplish a goal. Because for a Christian, there's more to it than simply just having a goal. But rather, or in addition to the goal that we're to have, its origin, that is where it comes from, and its destiny, where it leads us or what it's unto, all of those things make a huge difference when it comes to the things of God. I alluded a little bit a while ago to to King Solomon. And Solomon wrote the book on goal setting and accomplishment. In fact, it's in the Bible. It's called Ecclesiastes. And it's right after the Psalms and the Proverbs. You can read it. And basically what Ecclesiastes is, it's Solomon's journal of all of the goals that he set and then accomplished while he lived here upon the earth. But the common denominator in all of Solomon's goals recorded in Ecclesiastes is that every one of those goals were for earthly things. They were in worldly measure and and they had some kind of worldly attainment attached unto them. And his testimony concerning all of those pursuits and all of those attainments is that they were, listen, vanity and grasping after the wind. That is, they were empty. They brought nothing of lasting value into his life. And at the end of the day, he had nothing to show for what he had accomplished and what he had done. And and over and over again, throughout his testimony there, he says that all is vanity that is done under the sun. Whether it's a pursuit of money, a pursuit of pleasure, pursuit of happiness, pursuit of wine or women or gardens or lands or projects, whatever it is that he put his hand to, he said it's vanity and it's vain because it's done under under the sun. And he just repeats that over and over and over again. It's vain what is done under the sun. So you come to the conclusion of the matter and you say, Solomon, Mr. Goal Setter and Attainer, what's your testimony or your word of instruction to those of us that seek and desire a goal and to lead productive lives? And here it is, the summation of the whole of his life. It testifies to you and I that if the goal that we set for our lives, is for anything under the sun, it's going to come up vain and it will produce nothing of lasting value in our lives. The only goal that will ultimately bring lasting fruitfulness and advantage to anything is a goal that has its origin and its destiny over the sun. And there's only one thing over the sun, and that's God. So anything that's done with this world's value in view is going to come to nothing. It's an empty goal. So for the Christian, the goals that we set, the purpose that we have, the vision for our lives must be in something that's beyond the borders of this world. If it's going to make any difference in this world and if it's going to be any value for the kingdom of God and to our own well-being. And thus we come to the final chapter of Second Peter. And in this final chapter of 2 Peter, Peter gives to us instruction coupled with a warning. And the instruction concerns the Christian's readiness for the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
That's the theme of 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, you'll recall that the purpose of Peter's writing this letter is to remind us of the things he feels are the most important before he dies and goes to heaven. And so just three things in three chapters, one that we're to grow, two that we're to not be deceived by false Christianity, and then number three, that Jesus is coming again, and our attitude towards that reality makes a difference in our lives. It makes a difference in the world and for our future. And so this chapter deals with the reality of the second coming of Christ and what our place is, our attitude, our belief, and our lifestyle in light of the fact that he is returning. Now, Jesus promised us that he would return. In John chapter 14, he said, listen, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go... I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, a promise can't get any clearer than that. It's not subject to the interpretation of someone wiser than we are. Jesus said that he is coming and he will, in fact, come. That's a promise that he's given. What he didn't give to us was the exact time of when he would come. He just simply said to his followers, in general terms, meaning to all of us, that we're to be in a constant state of readiness watching for his coming, for his return. That's the word of instruction that's been attached to us. And God has strategically made it so that every generation of the church, even to the present day, has had good, solid reason to believe that they were the final generation and that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Now, God didn't do that to be deceptive, and he didn't do it so that we would catch on, get smart, and say, well, he's probably not going to come in our generation either. He did it so that we would be equipped to obey the command that we're to be watching for his imminent return, as though he could come at any moment. Why is that important to God and given to us in commandment to Christ? Because he knows that it's a vital ingredient in the success or failure of our Christian walk and life. That if we are not living in such a way that Jesus could come back at any moment, then that's going to affect every other part of our Christianity and it will ultimately bring us to a place of shipwreck. The highest thing that that reality affects in your life and in mine is where and how we set our goals. It determines whether or not we set goals for things that are eternal or whether we set goals for things that are temporary. That is what we live for, the purpose for our lives will be directly related to our belief concerning the second coming of Christ. And so Peter writes to us in order to encourage us that, hey, this is an important topic. It's not only worthwhile that you're aware of this, but it's absolutely necessary for your life that you live in readiness for his return. And so we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. Peter writes, and he says, This second epistle, beloved, so this second letter, Beloved, I now write unto you. And the word now uh, literally can be translated already 
And so basically the idea is that he, isn't spent, he hasn't spent a lot of time between the writing of the first letter and this one. He says, but this second one, I already now write unto you. And in both, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. That is that both of the letters that I've written to you are written for the sake of, of, of reminding you of these truths that are so paramount to your Christian life. And here he says that, that the purpose of this now. He says that you may be mindful or aware that your mind might be constantly flooded with the thoughts and the facts of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and our Savior. Now, the context of what he wants us to be remindful of, he hasn't told us yet here in this chapter, but it is all concerning the promise concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Peter tells us that this idea of Jesus coming again is not new to the New Testament, but rather this is something that's been prophesied from the old, even unto the new. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you realize that this was the plan of God from the very beginning of time, that Christ would come, that he would suffer and die, that he would leave, and then he would return the second time. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first deacon, or the, one of the first deacons in the early church, stood on trial before a, 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 a group of the Sanhedrin and, and gave his testimony just before they killed him and took his life. Stephen gave two examples to them as he preached Christ. He preached about Joseph and he preached about Moses. And he specifically chose Joseph and Moses as the subject of his sermon right before he was killed because both Joseph and Moses were a picture of Jesus Christ in that they both were rejected at their first appearance, but received at their second. When Moses first went to the, the Jews at the age of 40 and said, I'm here to deliver you and set you free, they rejected him and they said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses was driven out for a period of 40 years. But when he returned the second time, then they received him as their quote-unquote savior as he set them free from Egypt. The same thing was true of Joseph. When he first came to his brothers and said, hey, God has made me the deliverer. Your sheaves are going to bow down to our sheaf. They looked at him and they said, what? You're going to rule over us? Even Jacob and his mother said, You're, you, wait, wait, what are you saying? You're going to rule over us? Then J Joseph was rejected. He was in prison, rejected of his brothers, sold for 20 pieces of silver, forgotten about, and he was gone for a great period of time. But in their second appearance before him, when they came the second time, then it was revealed that he was in fact whom he set himself forth to be, and they received him as their quote-unquote savior, as he was the one that provided grain for the world. And so the idea of Jesus Christ crucified, rejected by the Jews, gone for a span, and then returning to be received the second time is not something that's isolated to New Testament theology. This was God's plan from the very beginning. 
And so Peter says, I want you to be mindful of the words that were spoken by the prophets, first of all, in the Old Testament. And then the command that was given by Christ through the hand of the apostles to you in the times that you're living in now. And so remember, Jesus is coming again, is what Peter is saying to them there. Now in verse 3 he says, in addition to being mindful of the fact of his second coming, he says, know this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. So add to your knowledge that Jesus is returning the fact or the word that in the last days there will be mockers that contradict the word of his promise that he will be coming again. The idea behind the scoffer is that they're a person that hears about the second coming of Christ and they laugh it off. They say, huh, yeah, Jesus is coming, right? We use that as a joke. You know, we say, yeah, we'll do that when Christ comes back because we've been hearing that for a long, long time. And by the way, didn't Peter and Paul, didn't they believe that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime? And then didn't the church fathers, didn't they believe that Jesus would come back in their lifetime? And then the reformers, didn't they believe that Jesus would come back in their lifetime? And hasn't everyone believed that? And they've all been wrong. So how foolish is it for you to believe that Jesus is going to come back in your lifetime? That's a scoffer. And what a scoffer does is that a scoffer brings in an opposing persuasion. Now, the correct persuasion is what Jesus said, that he was going to come and that we're to remain in a state of readiness for that coming at any time. That's the persuasion that God gives to us through his word, his promise. The opposing persuasion that comes through the mouth and the mindset and the doctrine of the scoffer is that you can kind of put that idea more on the back burner of your life. It's not important to live in such a way as though you expect Jesus to come at any time. If you're to live that way, you're going to miss out on a lot of worldly opportunities and advantages that you might have. Think about all the time that was wasted by Paul thinking that Jesus was going to come at any moment when he lived his whole lifespan and then he died, or anyone else who lived in such a way. It's a waste of time for you to think that Jesus is going to come back in your lifetime because statistically, the odds are that he's not. All of that is the message of the scoffer or of the mocker. They are persuading you with their competing persuasion to live a lifestyle that's contrary to what we've been called into by God and his son and the apostles, and the word of God that have laid this out before us. Notice what he says is the, the driving motivation behind the message of the scoffers. He says that they walk according to their own lusts. That is, that what drives them, or the goals that drive what they say and what they do, are somehow attached to the world or to their own flesh. They've got some other desire in mind than the things that God has for their lives or has purpose for their lives. They have something that they want for their lives and they see that the second coming of Christ is a distraction or an obstruction to what they would have. 
Understand this, church. Listen. That when someone seeks to persuade you against living for the imminent return of Jesus Christ, know that that persuasion is not something that's in your favor. That person is not looking out for your best interest. They're looking out for their own best interest, and they're looking for you to come into their camp to justify the lifestyle that they're living in disobedience to God's word. Anytime a Christian listens to that persuasion and begins to set goals for earthly things rather than eternal things, they begin living for the lower thing, and their life is on a fast track towards vanity and emptiness under the sun. That scoffer is not for your advantage. Now, what's the message of the scoffer? Peter says in verse 4. He says, and saying, here's what they say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The sun rises, the sun sets. The sun rises, the sun sets. We go on, we continue, we eke out a life, we live, we mature, we age, we die. And so what better than to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. All things continue from the beginning. Oh yeah? Not true. Peter would beg to differ. Notice Peter's argument to their persuasion, verse 5. He says, for this they willingly are ignorant of. Now I want you to circle those words in your Bible, however it's phrased in your translation. Those words, willfully ignorant, because those are very important words in the New Testament. The word willfully means on purpose, what I want. And ignorant means to be ignoring of something that's plainly true right in front of my face. So it means to be willingly ignorant means that I am willfully ignoring facts that I have available to me or at my disposal. I find that there are many people in this life uh, and even in this faith that are willingly ignorant about a lot of things. One of the the things that that God has taught me to do as I've grown in him um, is to discern when I'm speaking to a person uh, about a a subject, whatever that subject might be, um, that if if there's opposition in the conversation, to discern whether or not a person is, is sincerely ignorant or whether they're willfully ignorant about their position on a certain thing. And what I find is that when someone is sincerely ignorant about something, there's an openness and a receptivity to hear the word of God and what God has to say about something. And and they're persuadable if the truth um, is otherwise than, than the position. That's sincere ignorance. But willful ignorance is often determined by a closedness to reason when it comes to truth concerning a persuasion. And so you're talking with a person uh, concerning an issue. And, you know, maybe it could be anything. It could be eternal security. It could be the rapture and its timing. It could be the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It could be uh, the, the person of Jesus Christ and whether or not he was God or not. It could be anything. And, and you begin to say, well, can we look at the scriptures and, and see if we can come to a conclusion? And when you see that a person at that point becomes aggressive or they become defensive or closed off to being persuaded by the words of Scripture, then in your mind you can just mark it that that person is willfully ignorant about what it is that they have uh, chosen to believe concerning that thing. And here's my personal um, uh, 
policy concerning willfully ignorant uh, issues and situations is that I don't have time for that. Is that once I discern that a person is willfully ignorant, uh, they go from the position of pray for them to the, or I'm sorry, from the position of share with them to the position of pray for them. Um, because I'm not going to waste time trying to reason with someone who's willfully ignorant about a thing. And that might help someone here. You know, I, I get that with when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door or when I'm talking to the people in Walmart about, that are trying to tell me that God is my mother, you know, and the different people that come up in my life. You know, I, I quickly uh, seek to determine, are they sincerely ignorant people or are they willfully ignorant people? And, and if they're in the category of willfully, I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't have time for that. I'll pray for you. Um, but, you know, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Notice concerning that. That was free. That has nothing to do with the context of goals or the second coming of Christ, you know. But those are important words, to be willingly ignorant. Uh, mark that in your Bible and don't forget it. You're going to see a lot of those people. And God help us never to be those people. He says, for this they are wignorantly, (laughs) illingly, that's a good one. Here's what they're ignorant of. First of all, they're willingly ignorant of history. He says that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. All of that a direct reference to the six days of creation when God formed the waters and the dry land and he created the world. He says, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That is, they're willingly ignorant of the fact that there's a point in history since the beginning of creation when God did interrupt the sun rising and the sun setting in the daily routine of things, and he did bring in judgment upon an ungodly world, and all things didn't continue as they were since the beginning. The fact is that there is a point in history that we can look at where God intervened and judged, and that what you're saying isn't true that all things just continue. No. There was a specifically spoken, carefully planned, and perfectly executed interruption and judgment in the days of Noah's flood, where God did what God had planned to do from the beginning, and he intervened in an ungodly world and brought judgment in a moment. It happened. It's historical. The other thing that they're willingly ignorant of is not only historical fact of its happening, but also the fact that it happened in the perfect timing of God. When the flood came in Noah's day, it wasn't just something that God woke up one morning and he thought, okay, well, I've been waiting to play the flood card for a while and I don't have any greens or yellows and I can just win if I play this now and this is the strategic time and so I'm going to do it. Noah, build the boat, I'm opening the heavens. No, 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 no. God knew way out in advance the timing of how everything was going to go down exactly to when the flood would occur. When Enoch was born, who was the seventh descendant of Adam, he was born several hundred years before the flood, a few generations before Noah was even born. And the Bible tells us that Enoch walked with God. And Enoch had a son, and he named his son Methuselah. 
And the name Methuselah means at his death, it will happen. That's what the name Methuselah meant. The name of his son was prophetic of something that would happen at his death. Methuselah, many of you know, was the oldest man that ever lived. He was 979 years old when he died. And do you know that in the very year that Methuselah died, it happened? The flood. The flood came. It was prophesied. It was known. God was aware from the beginning when things would all play out in the proper sequence so that his judgment would fall upon the world. And what Peter is telling us, he's saying, listen, the scoffer that says, hey, listen, where's the promise of his coming? All things are just going to keep going on. No, 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 no. You've got to remember something. When the world is ripe for judgment, God's going to intervene in judgment. We have the flood as a testimony to that. And don't be so hot on your high horse to think that you know the timing of it. Because God knows exactly when all of that's going to play out. And he's not going to be late by one millisecond. It's going to happen exactly according to the timing that God has foreordained. Peter says this. But the heavens and the earth, verse 7. This is his declaration concerning the second coming of Christ. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, that is the current progression and existence of things today, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, kept in store, He's saying that all things are sustained or kept by God for the very purpose of the destruction that he's going to bring upon it at the end when it ultimately comes. He's going to do what it is that he says that he's going to do. The word in store that Peter uses there in verse 7, it's a word that means that it's stored up with fire. So when he says that it's kept in store, reserved unto fire, what it means is that the world, the very world that we're living in right now is stored up with fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That is, that the judgment that this world will someday face is already alive and it exists within the very creation itself. Now that's an interesting thing for Peter to say, who was a theologian and not a scientist. Why? Because those that study subatomic particles and subatomic particles and and that study physics and those types of things, what we've learned from them is that the basic elements or building blocks of all matter, these things called atoms, A-T-O-M-S, are made up of mostly space. There's the nucleus, the proton, the electron, and, you know, there's the spinning action that happens in the whole thing, but it's mostly space. And inside that atom, all of the particles are positively charged, which means that by nature they retract or repel from one another. And so what has puzzled scientists ever since the discovery of this is how is it that these atoms stay together? And it doesn't make sense to them because all the laws of science dictate that they should be flying apart from one another. But they don't. They stay together. And so they came up with an extremely scientific and technical term to describe why the atom stays together. They call it atomic glue. Very scientific, hard to remember, you know. 
But what happens when the atom does split apart? That's a neutron bomb. That's atomic explosion. The energy that is released at the splitting of the atom is extremely destructive in nature, isn't it? And thus what Peter says here is that the very elements, the very creation itself is stored up with fire for the purpose of God's judgment and destroying it in the end. Tucked inside of every single atom is enough energy, well, beyond what we can measure or comprehend, but they're stored up with the very fire that will one day be reserved unto the judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, he says in verse 8, be not ignorant of this one thing. You say, well, what is the deal then? Why hasn't he returned? Two reasons. Number one, timing. He says, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. One of the reasons that it's been so long and that Jesus hasn't returned yet is because God measures time in a way that you and I don't understand or comprehend, and it's completely different to the way that we view time. In God's economy, a thousand years are as one day, and one day for us are like a thousand years to God. It's completely different backwards and upside down. It's immeasurable to you and me. So we can't look at time from our perspective and think that God sees it in the same way. Peter is actually quoting here from Psalm chapter 90, verse 4. It's the only psalm that was written by Moses. And Moses is talking about or praying about asking for wisdom and numbering his days. And he says that a thousand years are as but yesterday when it is past to you, O Lord. A thousand years are just like one day. And so if we apply this to the equation, Jesus left the earth 2,000 years ago. In God's economy, it's really only been two days since Jesus left. It hasn't been that long in his mind. Now, Peter isn't saying, like, we should all let our shoulders down and go, oh, it's only been two days. I mean, he's going to wait at least a week. <laughs> you know, that's a long time, way more than my lifespan. No, the idea is that God knows the timing. He's absolutely specifically aware of it, but it's undiscernible from our understanding. We're not going to be able to figure out the exact moment of his return. But he knows the time. And that's the important thing. And he's given us a lot of things to look out for along with the command that we're to look for it. Not only timing, but the second reason for his delay is patience. Verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The greater reason why Jesus hasn't returned yet is not because God is trying to torture us by making us wait a little bit longer, but it's because God is interested in the salvation of lost souls. And that is so important unto him that he's willing to wait even to deal with the darkness and the decay of our society for the sake of seeing a few more come to a saving knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says this. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his wicked ways and live, saith the Lord. That's always the heart of God. His desire is always to see someone else saved. Now, 
I've only been a Christian for about 19 years. And I know that things were in a place back around the late 70s, early 80s, when everybody thought that Jesus was going to be coming like within moments because of the way the world looked at that time. And many were disappointed when he didn't. I'm not. Because if he did, I wouldn't be saved. I was alive, but I didn't know him personally. And so I wouldn't know him. So I personally... I'm a benefactor of his delay, and so are all of us. We're all born again here because he hasn't come back yet. And Jesus' desire is not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and thus patience is part of the reason why he hasn't come back yet. But, nevertheless, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. Now that's definite. Peter is making a declaration in this. He's saying the day of the Lord will come. Come Now, the day of the Lord that he speaks of here speaks of the day of judgment that is coming. It's not when that phrase is used, used necessarily as a specific day, but as the period of time when God will again judge the world as he did in the days of Noah. It's going to happen. Now, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is used 19 times in the Old Testament and five times in the New Testament. It's used by Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi. So this is a concept that is not new. The day of the Lord, the judgment of God that's coming in the end, that day will come. And he says that it will come as a thief in the night. That is, that it will be a surprise, which gets me a little bit excited because when I see all the crazy that's going on in the world right now, I think, Lord, how much longer can it be like a thief in the night before it's plain as day, like the nose on my face, you know? But he says, in the which, what's going to happen in that day, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and listen, and the elements, that is, the basic constituents of all matter and life, shall melt with fervent heat the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. I find it amazing that Peter, by the Spirit of God, could write with this level of accuracy concerning what's going to take place when God one day just whispers the word to every atom, let go. And the atomic glue <laughs> lets go. The elements will melt with a fervent heat and the world and all the works that are in it will be burned up. He's saying, listen, don't be deceived by the message of a scoffer or even if that scoffer is a little voice that lives inside your own mind that says, where is the promise of his coming? There's no use in living as though Jesus Christ could return. Listen, that day will come. And Everything that this world contains and everything that's done in it will be burned up in that day. It will amount to nothing. So what's the application as Peter is reminding us to remember? Beginning in verse 11. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation, that is lifestyle and godliness? The first thing that, that Peter tells to you and, you and I concerning application, concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ, is that all of our affections for earthly things and fleshly lusts are a complete waste of time. When we think back to the message of Solomon, 
that we spoke about earlier uh, in, in the message tonight. And we consider all of the things that Solomon gave himself to and pursued within this world. And that he, that he said that, listen, I didn't even see them stripped away from me and those things came to nothing. But when we take those same goals and pursuits for anything in this world and we weigh them against their ultimate destination and we realize that they're all going to burn, they're all going to dissolve, that they're all going to come to absolutely nothing, then the conclusion that we should come to in all of that is that if we're setting our goals and living our lives according to attaining and accomplishing things in this world, then we are living our lives in a complete state of waste. Because every one of those accomplishments and attainments are going to come to absolutely nothing. From time to time, we'll watch uh, the news and, or we'll read an article or something, and we'll hear about some famous athlete or some famous rock star that has to sell their $50 million uh, Beverly Hills mansion because they've fallen on hard times. And, and then it talks about how much debt that they've accrued and how when they come out of the deal, they'll be lucky if they have a T-shirt to wear and, you know, the whole thing. And, and sometimes you read about those, uh, those people, those articles and things, and you ask yourself the question, and you say, did they think, did they forget that they were mortal? I mean, did they think they'd live forever? You know, they, 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 they got big, they had a lot, they thought that this is just going to continue forever and ever and ever, never realizing that there's a day coming when that's not going to be there anymore. That can happen to you and I. We can be successful in the world's things and we can forget that's not forever and someday we may regret it. Sometimes we see a 50-year-old man or someone who is living in their golden years and it isn't money problems, but they look and they're estranged from their children, they're estranged from their, their spouse or from the people that were important in their life. And in the name of their career, in the name of their possessions, in the name of their things, They've realized that they've played the fool and they've given themselves to live for things that cannot sustain nor satisfy and that they have put behind them all of the things that really matter and they would do anything to undo the damage that they did because of it. And Peter is saying that one of the reasons why it is so important that we keep our eyes fixed upon the reality of his second coming is that it will keep us from setting goals for things in this life that will leave us empty and regretful. And he would spare us from it. The second thing that this teaches us that Peter lays before us, it's also in verse 11, is that holiness and godliness are consistently worthy goals. That means in spite of everything else that we are pursuing and doing for the things of God, we should be always consistently growing in holiness, that is cleanliness of life, and godliness, that is Christ-likeness in our character or transformation. The third thing he tells us is in verse 12. He says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The third thing that he tells us is that we should live looking constantly with hopeful expectation to the coming end of things. That that's to be paramount, a descriptive aspect of your life and mine. That when people say, what are you living for? I'm living for the second coming of Jesus Christ. I am looking constantly for his return. I am watching what's going on in the world, constantly measuring it against the reality that he's coming again. Verse 13 gives us the fourth thing. He says, nevertheless, we 
according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The fourth thing by way of application that Peter lays before us is that, and this is important, listen, is that what you and I are hastening towards is not the destruction of the world, but its renewal or our redemption. That is, the course that the world is on is absolutely headed for destruction. But the course that you and I are on is that we're headed for rapture. We, according to his promise, are looking for the new heavens and the new earth. We're not looking for the destruction. You know, we're watching those things because they're indicators but we're not bracing for them as though we're going to go through them. The blessed hope of the Christian is that he will rescue us out before he pours out his wrath upon an ungodly and Christ-rejecting world. And then the fifth word of application is given to us in verse 14. He says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. That is, listen, that if you believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any time, then your life and mine ought to reflect the fact that we make that our belief and our profession. If we confess, I'm waiting for his return, then I should live according to that profession. So that when he comes, he finds me, first of all, in peace. Peace in the life of a New Testament Christian always is related to me being in his will for my life. And so I want to be in his will for my life when he comes and finds me. To be without spot means that I'm clean, that I'm not living in sin or contrary to what he's asked of me. And to be blameless has to do with my relationships and my reputation. And so if I'm living this way, what that will look like in my life is that there's going to be a peace that's in me because I'm walking in his will for my life. There's going to be not a perfection, but a cleanliness wherein I'm not living in open and hidden sin. And there's going to be a blamelessness in my relationships and in my reputation. And Peter says, that's important. And so it's important for us to believe that Jesus could come because it's directly related to our, our, our uh, success or failure in these things that we're called to. And then he says, concerning uh, our patience, he says, account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That the reason he hasn't come yet is because he's still saving people. Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. As also in all his epistles, meaning that Paul's letters were circulated even to Peter at this time, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. He's giving us a warning here. He's saying, listen, you can understand these things, the complicated things concerning the second coming and God's plan in the world, but be wise and discerning and learning so that you're not deceived as well. You therefore, in conclusion, verse 17, beloved, Seeing you know these things before, beware. Circle that word. Highlight it. Let it reverberate in the echo chambers of your mind. Beware, lest you also, 
being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. What's the error of the wicked that he's alluding to here? The error of the scoffer, which is to say, where is the promise of his coming? Listen, Christian, believe this. If you, in your mind, aren't living in expectancy of his immediate return, there will be consequences in your life that if they play out, they will end in a shipwrecked faith. You'll come to a place where you'll say, how did I get here? And somewhere in that answer will be, I stopped living as though Jesus could return at any time. And Peter would have us not fall from our own steadfastness. But rather than verse 18 in our closing verse, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so Peter concludes the epistle where he began the epistle. He began in chapter 1 by saying, first of all, don't be deficient. Be always growing. He continued in chapter 2 by saying, don't be deceived, but study. And he concludes in chapter 3 by saying, don't be distracted, but look up. So important for the success or the failure of your and my eternity as we stand before him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for speaking to us through Peter's recorded letters. He endeavored to have these things for us, and he did. And so, Lord, may they be written upon our hearts now. Father, that we would never be caught as you come sleeping as the ten unwise virgins, but, Lord, that we would have oil in our lamps, that our hearts would be on fire, that we'd be laboring, Lord, for your namesake. So we thank you, Father, that you've spoken these things. And we ask, Lord, that where we need adjustment, where we need to lay down earthly affection, where we need to rebuke the scoffer that lives in us, we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would do those things even now. And so we commit our lives to you afresh. And, Lord, we ask, come quickly. Finish it, Lord. We await your return. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Maranatha, let's stand.